All right, so welcome again. This is a text from um, a Tibetan Buddhist uh, teacher from the 19th century. So not super old, but not super old in Tibetan history, but super old in like our time frame, <laughs> like our modern time frame, uh, as things change so quickly now. Uh, his name was Dodrupchen Tempe Nima, and he was, um, he was known as a Dzogchen master and, and a pretty profound realized meditator uh, in East Tibet, I believe. And he wrote on a lot of subjects, but this particular text, why I chose it, is it's not super long. I think I'll be able to complete it in like three or four sessions. And it really talks about uh, how to work with obstacles in our path. So as we start a path of Buddhism or meditation, we're definitely going to hit obstacles at some point. And an obstacle, and the Tibetan word for obstacle is barche. And barche just means literally something in between us and something else, right? So in the Buddhist path, we're actually aiming for awakening. We're aiming, aiming for something uh, called enlightenment, which means a freedom from clinging, a freedom from all that binds us, be it afflictive emotions, uh, karmic habitual patterns, and most of all, our dualistic bindings of mind, where we would say, just to put it in a simple way, it's the mind that binds us and it's the mind that frees us. So in the Buddhist path, really it comes down to how we use our mind, how we work with our projections of mind, and how we transform these. And so there's lots of different methods within Buddhism to work with this. Tons, right? But this uh, particular writing, uh, called Transforming Suffering and Happiness, is more uh, in the category of Tibetan Buddhism we call Lojong. So Lojong translates to mind training. And in a sense, all meditation practice is a type of mind training, because we're training the mind in something beneficial or virtuous. But Lojong, or this category of teaching called mind training, really refers to direct, kind of very practical pith instructions for working when there's a barche, when there's an obstacle between ourselves and where we want to go. So just to be perfectly clear, you might not all want to go to where this text is pointing to, meaning you might not all want enlightenment, and I recognize that as I'm, we're not all necessarily hardcore Buddhist practitioners here. But either way, I do think there's things that are useful in this text for all of us, uh, despite that. These are things we can apply to life. But here what he's talking about is the main, working with the main obstacle, uh, or obstacles, which are in between us and awakening, right? Full freedom from suffering and into our full, uncovering our full nature, what we call our Buddha nature in, in Buddhism. So. I may want to talk about that for a second because I imagine some people are new to Buddhism. Buddhism, uh, one very, I'll just say something briefly because this may set the premise for what we're actually looking for from this kind of text or what, what we're trying to bring about or the obstacles we're trying to clear. So Buddhism has a very unique take on our human predicament as some of you who have studied Buddhism know. One of the most unique takes, I think, is very different from our modern premise and our modern unexamined beliefs about ourselves and others, which is that we are not sort of screwed up and have to get better somehow. The Buddhist premise is we're fundamentally actually okay. And in this quality of being fundamentally okay, we call Buddha nature. Now, an interesting thing is Buddha nature isn't Buddhist, but we call it Buddha nature, right? So, you can look at this as we're just using a framework of the Buddhist path to describe this. But ultimately, Buddha nature is a quality every sentient being has, no matter if they're Buddhist or not, from a Buddhist perspective, right? And what is this Buddha nature? This Buddha nature is our potential, or this quality of being fully awake, being fully free, 
It's beyond a subject-object experience. It's beyond a duality. It's beyond a thought and a thinker. And it's also beyond suffering. And correlating to this text, it's also beyond happiness, which is an interesting thing to bring up. Yeah? But we won't go there now. <laughs> so really the Buddhist path if we were to sum it up, is about uncovering this Buddha nature. Because right now, if I say, you're fundamentally okay, you're, some of you are like, really? I don't feel fundamentally okay. I mean, I say that as a Buddhist teacher, but of course, I don't feel fundamentally okay most of the time, right? But I have a, a certainty in my own Buddha nature through enough practice, meaning I've touched enough of my underlying mind that I know if I continue on my path of meditation, I can fully uncover my Buddha nature. But in the beginning, when we just start a meditation practice, or we start out on the Buddhist path, this is really tough. And this is, there's a lot of doubt. A lot of us do not feel okay. A lot of us feel fundamentally fucked up from the root, right? So from just pointing it out, in this teaching here, in the, in, in, from the Buddhist path perspective, it's just saying, hey, look, that's not the case. Even though you can't see that right now necessarily, or don't believe that, it's just some other information to take in and to chew on. It also doesn't mean you have to believe that. It just means it's some more information, right, to think about. So personally, uh, I find this an incredibly uplifting statement because when we say, oh, we're not fundamentally screwed up, we're actually fundamentally okay, or uh, one term we could also use to describe this is some Buddhist teachers use the term basic goodness, which I think is a really nice term. We have this underlying basic goodness. I personally think this is way more uplifting than a lot of the philosophies, theories we have out there about the nature of reality and the nature of self. Whether it's true or not, that's something you have to explore. I'm just presenting it to you. But with this, it means something really unique, which means that as we're practicing the path of meditation, as we're attempting to uncover awakened mind, freedom from suffering, all of these subjects this text talks about, it's not something we have to produce. It's not something we have to necessarily believe in. It's something where we engage a path and we engage a process, and then slowly, slowly, our nature will be uncovered. One way my teacher says it, which I really like, is um, what's beautiful about this path of Buddhist meditation and, and, and practice is that when you authentically do it and when we engage it, what comes out is not necessarily we're, again, we're producing something, but what happens is what is not part of our nature, what is not part of this quality of our basic goodness, our Buddha nature, starts to fall away. So, again, this is something difficult to come into connection with in the beginning, but I'll give you an example that you may be able to relate with. So we just sat for half an hour, and we just sat with the body, and we felt the experience of the body, and, and just remain with that. For some of you, that may have been really difficult, for some of you, you may have found some actual calm there, right? But either way, when we turn the awareness of mind onto itself, onto the breath, onto the body, onto our experience, and we simply watch and bear witness, what begins to happen is our nature starts to come out. So we start to see when it's, it's very similar. <laughs> if we take a glass full of muddy water and we just put that glass of muddy water down for a certain amount of time, the dirt and all of the mud in the water is going to begin to settle. Right? So this shows that the dirt is not naturally part of the water. But for us right now, it doesn't feel that way. It feels like, okay, I'm all shaken up. Every thought I think, every anxiety I have is me, is me, right? 
But as we put the glass down in meditation, right, uh, using it as a metaphor, we begin to see, ah, okay, not all my thoughts are me. Not all my emotions are me. They're happening to me, so we're not dissociating from them. But, but they, they're, they're moving, they're impermanent, they're changing, they're not static, right? So right in that moment, it proves that actually we have Buddha nature, and that's all it's talking about. Because if we take that to its greatest extent, where we leave that glass alone for long enough, we'll achieve awakening, right? So this is the premise of what we're working from, and that's the reason I'm bringing it up, because we might all have different premises of what we're doing here. But this is the premise we're looking at from the perspective of this text. And that premise is now, what's in the way of uncovering that Buddha nature? Why are we not experiencing that right now? That's what this writing is talking about. Why do I feel I'm fundamentally screwed up rather than I'm fundamentally okay? And that's what this is focusing on, right? Is that clear? Yeah. So, to recap a little bit, there's really two parts to this text. We're, the majority of it is on how to use suffering as the path, more or less. How to use suffering that arises in our life. And again, we can get in this conversation. But I think do we all do we all agree that there's suffering in life? Maybe we should start there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> we agree on something. So here it's how to use that suffering of life in our path of meditation or more specifically in this text in our Buddhist path but if you're not Buddhist it's okay like I said you could use it in life and in your just spiritual path in general so then there's how to use relative means meaning using the conceptual mind so here it's like mostly we're stuck with our conceptual mind all day long we're stuck with our thoughts and our thoughts are habitual and they're churning and most of us don't have control over them Right? They just sort of run and run and run. We create stories about every situation we're in. Some of that is pleasurable, some of that is unpleasurable. So here, we're learning to change the tape of what's playing in our mind. We're learning to recognize, ah, okay, I do have efficacy if I, with awareness, I turn towards my experience, and I can change what that tape player is saying, meaning in an experience where I'm having difficulty, I'm experiencing a pain, dissatisfaction, or suffering, I can change my relationship to that. So he gives us different ways to do that. Of course, it's not exhaustive. He's just kind of making some suggestions. So he's saying here, just to sum up last time, last, last, time's, uh, last session's talk, he's saying here, first off, if we make a habit out of perceiving only the suffering in a certain situation, right, then when even the smallest problem comes up, it will cause enormous anguish in our mind. This is really the main instruction in this first part, which is when we dwell, it's pretty obvious, when we dwell on the negative, that's what we'll experience. So in a particular situation, when we only see a problem and we continually just let the mind run on, run on its own about that problem and sort of dwell on that, that's what we're going to experience. So in one way, the mind is not that hard to figure out. It seems complex, but it's a creature of habit. Yeah? Our thoughts, our emotions, they're habitual. So when we transform the habit, we experience something else. The problem is some of these habits are very ingrained in us, right? They're very strong. So that's the first, first thing, just recognizing if we make a habit out of that, that's what's going to continue. So then, so then he says first, the very first step here is we need to get rid of the attitude of being entirely unwilling to face our suffering. Again, this was my main point from last talk, which I think is a big one, 
uh, it's just a human predicament in general where from the poorest to the richest human being, nobody wants suffering. But we can have the extra layer, I call it, the extra layer of uh, sort of modern uh, society in the United States, especially here in New York, where we literally can go out and if we have enough money, get whatever we want, pretty much. So there's this extra layer of materialism that adds more difficulty in facing uncomfort. Because, you know, as the body ages, there's more uncomfort. And we want more comfort to help alleviate that pain. And that in itself is not a bad thing. But the problem comes here, like he's saying, when we're stuck in this attitude of being unwilling to face what's happening. So we can look at it not just as physical pain, we can look at it as emotional pain, like we were in the practice, right? And building up a habit or a strong resistance where we don't want to face what's happening is ignoring reality. It's ignoring what is. And from the perspective, uh, just in the basic teachings of the Buddha, pretty much that's where a lot of our suffering dwells. The suffering of body, aging, sickness, death, etc. We can't avoid. All of us have to experience that. But what we can avoid is how we use the mind and how we put that second arrow. Right. So there's this sutra that talks about the double arrow, where one arrow is just the suffering itself, not getting what we want, getting sick, somebody dumping us, whatever it is, right? That first suffering. But then we also we have control over the second suffering, which is the second arrow where we're fearing that, we're gaining anxiety over that, we're just stuck in the habit of dwelling on the problem itself. So in one way, this text really helps to work with that second arrow. Not that we're going to be able to completely get rid of it, but that we can start to transform our mind and realize we have much more efficacy when we start to turn, use the meditation to turn towards the mind and understand our thoughts and emotions, right? Here's where we can really see a difference between secular meditation and Buddhist meditation. And I'm not saying secular meditation is bad. It may be really useful to some of us. But Buddhist meditation is not interested in calm and, and, and pleasure. It's interested in knowing the nature of how something is. It's interested in using meditation to open up a process of being able to turn towards our experience so we can find true resilience in that. Calm, pleasure, checking out, relaxation, those are all like taking a pill. That's all they'll do. The pill wears out. Now, I'm not saying that's not useful. For a lot of us, that's like a stepping stone, right? When I first come to the cushion to practice, I just relax. That's the first step. I just come into the body and relax. But I don't leave it there because I want to know my nature. I want to know my mind. I want to know what's fundamentally binding me, right? So based off that premise, the meditation is, is, is not the end goal. The meditation is the method or the means to understand mind. It's the means to look at the mind and seeing, hmm, where am I avoiding my experience? Where am I unwilling to face and be with and try to transform how I'm relating to suffering? So that's his first point. And then really this, this, this next section, which I'm not going to go over the whole thing, he really talks about how to drop the attitude of being entirely un unwilling to suffer. So he's actually using reflection itself as a tool to drop that attitude. I personally think for us we need a combination of the practice we first did tonight, which is not a, a, a reflection necessarily. It's just coming right into the experience itself. So when you're experiencing a painful emotion, a painful feeling, sensation in the body, instead of ruminating on it, drop into the body and feel it and just offer space for that. That's one method, right? 
Another method is, let's say we're not able to do that, or we're, not on, the, we're on the subway and we don't feel comfortable doing that. He says you can use a gentle reflection also. And he's offering two things here. First, thinking how useless it is. How useless it is to dwell on a problem, right? So Shantideva, in his famous text, The Way of the Bodhisattva, he says, if you can do something about a problem, go do it. What's the use of worrying about it? Go fix it. If you can't do anything about the problem, what's the use of worrying about it? So in both cases, there's no point in worrying. But I don't know if you're like me, I tend to just dwell in that worrying again and again. So I have to tell myself, is this, or I have to ask the question, is this really useful? Is it useful for me to dwell in this worrying about this situation again and again? And so over time, if we ask that question enough, something will start to transform. And we're going to be like, hmm, I'm, I don't think so. And then we're going to look for new ways to work with that. One way, as I already said, is just drop into the body and be. Right? This is actually quite a powerful practice. It's really transformed a lot for me. Then his second advice, when it's just we're using a reflection, is thinking about how much trouble it causes to dwell in the suffering. So we... Even, and I'll give an example. So there could be a very small problem. Like, for instance, I'm an organized sort of anal retentive Virgo. And so when my partner, you know, leaves a bunch of stuff around, I start, you know, moving stuff around and organizing it, which she is super elated about. But <laughs> I start moving it around. And really, it's not a big issue. It's, a, it's, it's really not a problem in the greater scheme of something. But in my mind, I'm kind of, first I start by, I'm at the table kind of writing or typing, and I start by looking at it. And I'm like, no big deal. <laughs> then I go back to the computer. Then I go, hmm, I think I, think, I think I need to move that. And I go back to the computer. This is awful. You know, suddenly I built this small plate or plates out of whack into this big problem when it really isn't that big of a problem. So we could see how when we dwell on something, when we dwell on a problem, a small thing becomes a large thing, right? And similarly, we could say the opposite. When we know how to work with a large problem, like let's say we get cancer. I hope you don't, but let's say we do. It's all how we relate to that diagnosis that transforms the problem. So that cancer could become a big deal. It could destroy our ruin, as we say, it can ruin your day probably will, but it can ruin your day. Or we, if we know how to approach it with a more open mind, a more proactive mind, it could also become a point of inspiration. Actually, sickness is often a place that connects us into others more. Because when we start, we start to open up our, mm, our relationship to that, we start to see all others experience sickness. All others, many people have to experience cancer, right? So anyways, just some ideas of how to work with it. So that was mostly what we talked about last time. So this time, let me just check the time. Uh, it won't tell me. Can you, can you grab me that clock there? Uh, just because this phone won't tell me. Thanks. Oh, wow. So here in the text, which I'll go over just briefly because I want to leave some time for Q&A. What he's talking about now is the main theme is cultivating the attitude of being joyful when suffering arises. <laughs> so, so this, I don't think is a real popular one. I don't think um, I'm going to be able to sell a lot of books on this one. 
if I write a, you know, a self-help book about it. But nonetheless, it's a traditional Buddhist teaching. So first, we have the category how to, not being, being willing to face what's happening, right? Be it a small problem or a big problem. Now we have actually cultivating joy when that problem happens. And so he gives a bunch of methods for doing that. So he says, seeing suffering as an ally to help us on the path, we must learn to develop a sense of joy when it arises. Yet whenever suffering strikes, unless we have some kind of spiritual practice to bring to it, one which matches the capacity of our mind, no matter how many times we, we might say to ourselves, well, as long as I've got roughly the right method, I'll be able to use the suffering and obtain such and such benefit. He's saying it's, it's unlikely that's going to succeed. Therefore, use suffering as the basis for following, uh, and, and then he's saying, and use the following practices. So the first one is using suffering to train in renunciation mind. So renunciation mind might be a, a new mm, word to all of you, and I'll, and I'll explain it. But basically, it's the first development along the Buddhist path. And we could say it's within the first noble truth, when the Buddha said, no dukkha. And dukkha being here, not just grosser types of suffering, but all the subtler types of dissatisfaction and permanence we experience in our life. And usually we put these into the three categories of suffering of suffering, suffering of change, and pervasive suffering. And I'm not going to go into detail here just because of time. But essentially, renunciation mind is fully doing our investigation in what is binding us. What is really the problem maker in our life? What is causing the fundamental issue or dissatisfaction? I usually say, what are we putting our reliance in that is not reliable? And from a Buddhist perspective, it's quite vast. So I'm not, again, I'm not going to be able to go into it in detail tonight. But really we could say when we put our, mm, our hope in something that's changing, in something that's impermanent and is going to change or move or transform into something that's painful, we're going to suffer, right? And part of our predicament, part of our habit, unfortunately, is to endlessly put our hope into these kinds of objects, right? So again, I'm not talking about um, something that's going to really go wrong. It could be something as simple as putting our hope into um, a pleasurable experience on a Sunday afternoon, like in the park or whatever, right? And then how long can we actually enjoy that experience? Maybe for some of you, you can enjoy it really long. For me, I'm kind of a really nervous, Jewy type person. So, you know, it's not very long that I can hang out there, maybe two hours and then I need to leave. But either way, at some point, we hit our threshold. And at that point is when that specific situation became unreliable. Now, from a Buddhist perspective, it was unreliable for happiness from the moment we started it. And that's a little diff more difficult to understand, but that's what the Buddha taught. And so in this, we call it the suffering of change. For instance, that a pleasurable experience, like a sunny day in the park, eventually we have too much sun and we have to move, right? So for some people, they would say, well, what's the problem? That's just how life is. Yeah, it is. And the Buddha said life is suffering. So, and why? Because of Basically, we're moving from moment to moment of pleasure, aversion, and back and forth all the time. And also back and forth between hope and fear. And so, renunciation mind is developing the attitude, after enough reflection and study and, and teaching on it, that this, isn't, this is unsatisfactory. 
like, I don't think this is the purpose of life. I don't think the purpose of my life is just to earn money and die. So we start to feel a type of emergence growing, a type of attitude of, okay, well, what else is there? And we start to seek, well, what, what is really reliable? And from a Buddhist path perspective, it's the Dharma that's reliable. The Dharma not being necessarily the writings of the Buddha, though that's included, but the Dharma of inner realization. And going back to my first point, the Dharma of uncovering our underlying Buddha nature. And so this comes about through obviously more study and, and understanding of the Buddhist path, but slowly a practitioner will gain that confidence. Hey, I think there is something called awakening. I think if I do meditate enough and with the right motivations and with the right methods, I can uncover this Buddha nature. And so we start to put our uh, hope, our reliability in something that will actually produce benefit for us rather than just moving from experience to experience. Now, this is a bit sad to say, and I don't know if it's sad for you to hear. For me, I don't want to say it, but let's be honest. That's what mostly our lives are. They're just moving from one pleasurable experience to another and trying to avoid one unpleasurable experience after another. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, is this how we want to use our human life? And from a Buddhist perspective, it's not satisfactory. That would be a wasteful way to live our lives, right? But again, we have a strong culture of this, of materialism, and a promise of happiness through that. I'm sure most of you know that's not really true intellectually, but how do we interact with that on a very practical level? Do we believe that? I mean, I know for me, every time I eat ice cream, I think I'm gonna get a different result. <laughs> but I get the same result, which is why the fuck did I eat that ice cream, you know? I feel like shit and I just got fatter for it, you know? So I'm not saying I, I can't enjoy it in the moment, right? And with all of this, I'm not saying we can't enjoy life. We can, but we can enjoy life even more if we know where true reliability lies, right? So here he's saying when suffering arises, we use that to develop renunciation. So that's the first step, just training in, hmm, okay, I wonder if there's something out of this suffering. And then we look towards the Buddhist path. The second I already said, which is using suffering to train in refuge. So this is where, generally, another way to frame what I was talking about is that what are we taking refuge in? What are, where are we seeking shelter when we're not happy? Where are we seeking shelter when we're suffering? And from a Buddhist perspective, the only thing that's reliable is uncovering this Buddha nature, or we could say the Dharma, but the Dharma is really aimed at uncovering this Buddha nature. So at the end of the day, that's what's reliable. And so we could also use suffering to turn us towards that. Um, another way, and I, I don't think I have to explain this so much, is using suffering to overcome arrogance. So when we, I know when I get sick, I turn into a baby. <laughs> I hate being sick, it's, it, you know. And so um, definitely my arrogance goes down, that I'm the strong kind of young guy. Completely pops as soon as I get a cold, right? So we can use it in that way. And, and in one way, we have to be careful here, because here in, in, in this culture, a lot of us, arrogance and low self-esteem are kind of like two sides of one coin, and we often flip between them. So when we pop the arrogance, it might not be the arrogance we're popping, it might be just, we might go back into the low self-esteem. So here it's really talking about a pride that someone might have where they're already a healthy human being, meaning they don't have that low self-worth. They have a confidence in, in themselves, but that confidence gets a little too happy and moves into arrogance. So I don't think culturally this is super appropriate to us, but it can be. 
and then lastly, um, just to just to sort of close out this section, um, we can use suffering to train in compassion and to train in altruism. So this is really the main feature of the Lojong tradition I was talking about, this tradition of mind training, uh, which this text is in that category. So here we use our own suffering to reflect on the suffering of others. So just as we did in the beginning of our practice tonight, I had you just connect with the earth, and then at the end of practice, I had you connect whatever vulnerability you came into contact with in yourself and connected that to all others, and that they also experience vulnerabilities in a similar way. So here we reflect with compassion that just as we ourselves wish for uh, freedom from suffering, we wish that for others as well, right? So we use our own suffering as a trigger to remember compassion for others. Now that evolves in the next verse where it's on using suffering to cherish others more than ourselves. Now this is a bit of a, a more advanced technique in Mayana Buddhism. But essentially, we're reflecting on the preciousness and the value and worth of others. I've noticed for me personally, because I didn't feel worthy a lot of my life, until I came into my own self-worth, it, it was really hard to feel the worth of others. So if you have a hard time sensing and coming into a worth of others, you might have to turn the mirror back to yourself first, which is okay. That's perfectly fine. And then as you come into your own inner worth and value more, you're going to be able to value and, and, and find the worth of others more. Now, here, again, we can take this unique take of the Buddhist path. What are we finding worthy in others? Is it, you know, because again, we get into this, if, if we're finding worth in all beings, what about, you know, Kavanaugh? Like, what about these kinds of people? Are we also seeing value and worth in them? Yes. But we're not seeing value and worth in necessarily their behavior or what their personality is. We're seeing it in their underlying Buddha nature, that yes, they too have the potential to wake up. They don't know that. They're not accessing that right now. But like a hidden gem buried underneath a house, it's there. So that's what we're finding valuable in people from the Buddhist path. We're seeing that, yes, they can act like assholes, but underneath their habits and patterns, there's also a being who wants happiness, who wants to avoid suffering. And so therefore, they're worthy of that, right? And that's something we have to reflect on. It's not easy, especially with people we dislike or, or hate. So this is a practice. So here, we would use our own suffering to not only reflect on compassion for others, but to actually cherish them, right? So he says, train yourself to think. The re very reason, this is a little hardcore, but I'll read it. The very reason why I'm not free from suffering such as this, is that from time immemorial I have cared only about myself. Now it's getting to the root of why we suffer, actually. Now from this moment onwards I will only cherish others, as this is the source of all happiness and good. So, that's all I wanted to talk about tonight, but essentially here we're just using different conceptual means. I think the compassion one is a really accessible one. I think it's a really good one here in New York City, because we're constantly coming into the space of others and they're coming into our space, so whether we like it or not. And if we put ourselves in their shoes, we can develop compassion. And then while I'm sitting there sweating my ass off, suffering on the subway, I know somebody next to me is also suffering, sweating their ass off on the subway. And I can have compassion for them. And what happens in that moment? My suffering lessens. So this isn't all like, like he's not giving this as a self-punishment or a way to think we're bad or a way to you know give our become a doormat for others. No, our suffering will lessen because if we train our mind in this, 
right? So one example is the Dalai Lama, who's a, kind of a lofty example, but I like his story. He had a surgery, like he had to have a gallbladder removed, or, or no, he had kidney stones or something, really painful. And he was really in pain and going through a car in, in a very poor part of India. And the car stopped at a light, and he looked out, and the big, has, has anybody been to India before? The beggars you see in India are like, like, there's no comparison here in, America, in the United States. Uh, people with, you know, limbs really disfigured, a lot of physical disability, and just really poor, like naked, sitting on the side of the road. And so he saw one of the, he saw one of these beggars, and immediately a strong compassion arose in him, a strong feeling that he wanted this individual to be free from suffering, be free of the pain of whatever they're going through. And then about 10 minutes later, his pain came back. And he noticed, oh, what happened to my pain during all that time? And so for him, the compassionate response developed a joy that actually the pain lessened. And actually in cognitive science, they're studying this now. So Richie Davidson's lab, uh, which studies meditators in um, Wisconsin, they're seeing the same effect. They see what happens in the brain, and there's actual chemical changes that happen. Sorry, I feel like I have to say this to... <laughs> no, if, uh, okay. <laughs> I don't usually talk about brain science and cognitive ability, but for some reason people love that. I don't know why. So if this helps you, then it's true that we do see brain changes and chemical changes in the body when not only meditation happens, but especially when we meditate on compassion. So for me, just very practical advice in all this. If we want to take suffering into our path, when you're on the subway, when you're in a situation you don't like, think of the others around you. Think of what they're going through. Don't just think about yourself. And just notice what happens to your own suffering. Do it as a test. Actually, you can come back to me and say, Scott, that didn't work. Screw you. I'm never coming again. <laughs> I want you to try it. Try it as a test. See what happens. I know for me personally, it works. And so these are very practical methods we can use to work with those obstacles. Because what's the obstacle here? When we remain sort of cocooned into our own suffering and our own pain, we're useless. We're not useful to ourselves. We're not useful to anyone else. So this is all about growing our inner wisdom light, bringing out our Buddha nature, and uncovering really, you know, we could say true happiness in a way. So anyways, if there's any um, quick questions, we're pretty much out of time, but yeah. So just the... Um Yeah. So the stranger on the subway is easy. Yeah. Right? Um, much like in the long time of meditation, the stranger is often the easiest person to show compassion for. But the Kavanaugh example yeah. is kind of like the person who's doing ill. Yeah. Right? And they may never come in touch with their good nature. Not this life, yeah. And so yeah. It, it doesn't feel authentic to say they can well, here's the thing. We can even say, we don't even have to talk about Buddha nature. We can just leave that aside. Because that's something underlying. That like even the most evil person in the world, which he is not, he's not a great person, he's not a most evil person. We would say from a Buddhist perspective, they even have this potential to attain awakening. So it's like a potentiality. But anyways, we'll leave that alone. Here we could just even think, that person seeks happiness. I'm not saying their means for achieving that is correct, or that they are, they're not mistaken in those means. Like, Trump really does want happiness at a fundamental level, and we have to look into that. We can look into our own mind, we can look at the mind of others. Like, is there a being that seeks out harming someone, maybe a psychopath, 
but, a, but aside, or a sociopath, but aside from that, most people, they're looking for happiness. And so when a person, especially like Trump or Kavanaugh, is doing it in a way that is so unskillful and harmful to others, actually for me, they're more an object of compassion. And this might be a un- misunderstanding of what compassion means. Compassion doesn't mean, hey man, do whatever you want. Like, go for it. Like, you know, go harm as many women as you want. That's not what compassion means. Compassion means we recognize that fundamentally underneath that behavior is suffering, right, for that person. It doesn't mean we let them off the hook for bad behavior. That wouldn't be compassionate either, right? So depending on the situation. But our response here, we're growing as a practitioner, is really to respond to what, who they, what they fundamentally want and their value as a person underneath that behavior. And it's not easy. That's why I mean your question is a good one. It's not an easy thing to come to. I think for me, it's taken me a lot of years to recognize this. And when moments like where t- someone tells me F you on the street, I don't usually respond seeing their Buddha nature. I respond you know, with a mudra. My teacher calls this the American mudra. You know, mudra means like a hand signal, like a real spiritual one. So you know, I respond with something sometimes not skillfully, sometimes I just shut my mouth. But afterwards, as a practitioner, I reflect and I think, well, that guy also wanted happiness in some strange way. Do I have to become a doormat for him? No. But I can also recognize his value. And actually, we could even say when we're challenging someone in their belligerence and ignorance, we could still be recognizing their fundamental value. This is where I think um, Bell Hooks and more, uh, uh, I forget her, this movement, but this movement of activism is the one that I feel is the, the most, will, have the mo- will be the most productive in the world. Because you're, you're never demeaning that person to be less than human. You're recognizing their humanity, but you're also saying, hell no, like I'm not going to, you're not going to just, you know, go around and do what you want and cause harm. Yeah? So, so we have to, yeah, it's something to work with. But I would say, first, we don't work with the Trumps of the world. We work with just things we can handle. Like, for me, the guy who says F you on the street or does something kind of not so nice, that's something I can handle in the moment, maybe 10 minutes later, right? But somebody who tries to kill me, that might be a little different. <laughs> not that that's happened. <laughs> yeah? Um, how does the uh, punching Nazis uh, figure into what you just said about um, like activism that is uh, so about Yeah. So you're saying, like, can you punch, how would you punch a Nazi with compassion? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I've, I've been in an argument with people, and at first I was like, no, violence just, it's just, it's just going to make them more yeah. resolved in their own Naziness. And people were like, no, these people, they actually, you know, they think other people, you know, they're Nazis. They just deserve to be punched. Yeah, and I disagree with that, too. I mean, I don't feel they deserve to be punched unless there is that punch is going to prevent further harm to them or someone else. And that's where compassion in the Buddhist path is always uh, uh, friends with wisdom. And so otherwise we end up in idiot compassion where we punch someone and we created you know, a riot when that didn't need to happen and other people got hurt and died for no reason. Or idiot compassion where we needed to act right, and we didn't do it because we didn't have the wisdom to do that. So for me, it's not a question, the action can, actions can be various. Often we get really stuck in the action. 
when actually it's the intention behind it and the wisdom to know is that going to really have efficacy in bringing about less suffering for others. And so I can't say if punching one would, <laughs> as a Buddhist teacher, is a little strange, but I can't say whether punching a Nazi would be good or bad. It really depends on the situation. Like if, if, that, if that sort of Nazi was going to harm someone else and, and punching him or her would well, alleviate that, then maybe it's okay. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't think that works so well. I mean, again, we can get into semantics around it, but, but, it, but again, you, like, like I was saying to her question, uh, you're not becoming a doormat for someone else. That's really clear. But we also have to, usually we're really mixed up and our anger gets misplaced in these areas. So we think we're having compassion when we're just angry. So first, our motivation and intention has to be really clear what's going on, right? And then, um, and then we can act from that. So the whole point here is, if we really develop a strong, rooted compassion, there's, there's a better chance that we'll act from that, right? So then as a meditator, we're trying to grow that more and more. And it's not that we're just hoping a compassion and action will happen. No, like we're putting effort and really strong intention into the best result for that. But as far as intimidation and all that, yeah, there's lots of things that... This is the problem, because the way interdependence works in the world... I mean, we can... This is maybe something we don't all agree on, but something to think about. I think most, most of you would agree. The world is, is based off cause and effect. And other causes make, have effects, and those effects create other causes and affect other things. So it's like this massive web of interdependence. So you can't say, like, one thing is then going to fix everything, because one thing triggers thousands of other, millions of other interdependences. So it's sort of like, it's very tricky. I often use this example, and sorry for all the strong examples, but that's just, I like to be provocative sometimes. What if Trump's impeached? So what? We don't know. That might, that might tank the United States even into more turmoil. We don't know. So we assume sometimes there's a simple fix. And this is the samsaric problem he's getting at in this text, where this is a little bit our deeper suffering, where we don't know what's going to cause harm or benefit sometimes. And that's a suffering in itself. But we have to try to grow our compassion and do our best job. That's what I would say. We have no choice. Yeah? yeah. Yeah. So I, if I see you out there in Antifa gear, I'll know what I'll know which way you went. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Yeah, it, these are tough ones. Um, but essentially, here, first we have to come to the conclusion that everything comes from mind. Meaning, and we're res- like, I don't have control over any of you, but I do have control and efficacy. Of, you know, with my mind and actions. And so we start there. And then I think when we start there, it's a safer bet than getting into all this judgment of others. What I see now, actually, a lot of our suffering, modern suffering is happening, so much judgment. So much judgment. And then everything out there looks to blame. And I'm not saying it's not. I'm not saying there's not problems. There are, obviously. But we also have to look here. We also have to see, well, where can I? Where does the efficacy true, truly lie? Of course, it lies in uh, lies in trying to enact compassionate uh, 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 legislation and, and activism and all that stuff. That's helpful, but 
we also have to work here. And a lot of us, I think, it's harder to work here, honestly, I, I believe. So it's, it's much easier to blame others. What does that say? It says someone, when you're pointing at a finger, I like this, it's not a Buddhist quote, but it's someone else. When you're pointing a finger at someone, there's three fingers pointing back at, at you, right? So for me personally, this is what I work with, because that's when I notice when I, when I work that way with myself, that's when the wisdom and compassion begin to converge a little bit more. And then maybe there's a better chance I'll be able to act from those. I'm not saying I do, just saying maybe there's a better chance. So I, and I'm just being simple, like in my personal relationships, I've noticed that. Anyways, I went way over, I apologize for telling you. <laughs> so um, we'll just close just with a short dedication, if that's okay with everyone. Very short. So here, due to this positive energy, positive virtuous energy we've been cultivating here together tonight in our meditation, in our discussion, whatever you've been churning in your mind, whether it's doubt, whether it's joy at what we've been talking about, doesn't matter. What matters is we're actively engaging with this and, and that we want to use this active engagement to, to grow our inner wisdom, to benefit others, to benefit ourselves, to make the world, yes, a more pleasurable, a more peaceful place to live in. And if we want awakening, that too. So just feeling that in your heart, we're going to begin to share that with all beings. So just letting that expand like a light from the heart. All of the, the virtue we've come into contact with and accumulated here, we share with all beings, just as a loving intention, that they may be well, they may be happy, and that they may be free from pain. So just share that from your heart if you'd like to visualize that as a light emanating from you and getting bigger and bigger and touching every being and the world and universe. Go ahead and do that. Okay. So thank you all so much for joining me tonight.